psyched to do this. And I'm psyched it's fucking nice out. I never get to be interviewed outdoors. I'm going to turn off my video, if you don't mind, just to help with bandwidth on my side. Okay. Cool. I will, too. Cool. I'm going to keep my sunglasses on, though. No problem. And I was, If you don't mind. I don't give a shit. You can... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To view our full catalog, visit our website at nonserviummedia.com. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviummedia. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and you're listening to the 30th episode of the show. Radical politics and music have a long and rich history. Our guest today navigates both worlds with passion and persistence. Here's my interview with Tim Holland. Fire every cop, we don't need him. You the only thing standing between me and my freedom. I don't gotta rap or clean the sewers once a week. Grow my own food, visit my neighborhood. This shit gets down for tax revenue and a bonus when they legalize pot. They moved on to the homeless out of friends. Funeral, he was trying to unwind. They shot Ryan Ron Keel 12 times. Tim Holland, or better known by his stage name, Soul, is an anarchist, producer, and prolific underground hip-hop artist from Portland, Maine. He is one of eight co-founders of the record label Anticon. And beyond making badass insurgent rap music at a professional level, he also hosts a couple shows of his own called Propaganda by the Seed and Institute for Post-American Studies. Tim Holland, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. How's it going? Um, it's going good. I mean, I'll be honest. I am kind of on like a marijuana fast. Like, I don't know how most people have been in the pandemic, but I'm like, you know, I broke records this year with how much weed I smoked in the house and uh, some sort of like detoxifying right now. So I'm really punchy. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. So I'll try, I'll try to be positive during this interview. (laughs) I'm six months alcohol free right now. So nice. Speaking of it's 420. I didn't even realize that. I know, and that's why, I, and I just found like a lost vape cartridge, and so I was like, "All right, it's 4:20. I'll take a hit after the interview." So I'm not like, <laughs> <laughs> "There you go." You know, you gotta live a little, you know. For sure. So beyond what I've described in your introduction, there, I mean, why don't you why don't you expound on on who you are and what you are for folks who might not be familiar with um, what you do? Um, you know, I'm all those things that you said. 
you know, I've done my share of organizing and participating in struggle over the years. And yeah, I think the only other thing that wasn't really mentioned there is the podcast I'm probably the most prolific with these days is like a spinoff podcast from the sold cast called Propaganda by the Seed. And that's a podcast kind of exam. I mean, it's mostly just nerding out about permaculture and food forestry and perennial plants and weird edible tree crops and anything that like falls in that world, but trying to do what we can to draw the radical politics out of these practices and look at like different ways that people are using food and plants and things like permaculture and food forestry to further social struggle or radical politics. And so that's like some shit I'm really interested in because I just really love I don't know, gardening or, you know, fucking with plants and cooking. And, you know, I'm a vegan. So for most of my life. So I just like, you know, I just love trying weird plants and just eating strange things that, you know, we've been eating like broccoli and potatoes for most of our lives. Like 20 something vegetables are what we eat. But yet, you know, human beings evolved through eating acorns and stinging nettle and just like all the, all the stuff around us that we just don't have any relationship to or understanding of. And so, yeah, so that's some shit. That's like the shit I'm geeking out the hardest on these days because I've been locked in the house for a year and the snow finally melted. And, you know, I just want to hear the birds and feel the wind. Yeah, for sure. Just to be able to like socialize with people again would be nice for me personally. Yeah. But yeah, like I'll, I'll go ahead and when I re-record your intro, I'll include the uh, propaganda of uh, the seed. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Okay. Um, I'm not going to bunny trail. What, what you're talking about, like having a relationship with your like social environment, obviously reminds me of social ecology to some extent. So as you know, I work with Scott and we do these little audio paintings where he finds someone that he likes, an anarchist that he likes, and I'll put like music behind it and stuff. And uh, John P. Clark was the latest one that we were doing. And um, he was talking about the difference between like place and space, right? Space being somewhere where you do not have a relationship with the environment around you, whereas place is something where you are integrated within your environment and so are the social institutions and everything else. That's beautiful. I like that. Yeah. And then like the dialectical, like never actually getting there. So like we're in a constant state of splace. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. I thought that was fun. Bunny trail. All right. So one of my favorite songs of yours is Fire the Police. You wrote that a long time ago. And before we get into all the personal questions I have about you, I feel we should probably address I mean, there's been a lot of recent murders, actually, by police, but one of the ones that's getting a lot of attention right now, uh, for good reason, is Dante Wright's murder. Mm -hmm. Lots of folks feel that calls to abolish the police last year were defanged by liberal centrists. Do you agree with that? And what do we need to do differently this time in order to make real headway towards police abolition or just, just less deaths in general? There's two ways of looking at it. Like the first thing I would say is like, you know, the same thing that anarchy, I don't regard myself as some kind of anarchist theory about what's going to like win. I'm actually pretty 
pessimistic about what's possible, yet I'm constantly surprised and blown away by things that happen. You know what I mean? You know, like the George Floyd uprising was to me very unexpected. Oh, for sure. And that makes me glad that I'm wrong often. You know what I mean? Like feeling like things are hopeless, feeling like mm-hmm. that even some of our strongest resistance ends up getting like used against us and shit, you know? But um, yeah. And so it kind of remains to be seen. It's like, you know, there's like this push for like kind of like small town abolition where, you know, people are. Like, for instance, like I'm just talking to a journalist in Gray, a couple states, a couple cities over. And like, you know, city council just voted to defund the to end their police department. So they don't have a police department in Gray. What? You know? Where's that? Gray, Maine. Oh, my um, God. But, you know, I mean, there's still like it's still a small town. And so there's like a county county sheriffs mm, you know, but okay. that's not it's not the same, you know, and so it's like it remains to be seen if. If there is a reformist path to abolition, I don't think that there is. You know, I don't think true abolition is going to come through reforms, you know, especially if you're talking about getting just, it's just going to require constant struggle, constant sacrifice, constant low intensity conflict, you know, getting bigger and bigger. And yeah, and that's just how I see it. I mean, I think that it's like, you know, I think all these things that, make it harder for police to kill people and, you know, take people out of prisons and like decriminalize things. Like I see all that stuff as positive. You know, I don't, I'm not one of the, I'm not one of these radicals who sees a positive reform happen. And I'm just jumping to denounce how that's not the revolution because quite honestly, you know, as an anarchist, like what, what would a revolution mean in 2021? Mm. You know, what, what do we do with all those MAGA people? What do, what do we do with the centrists? What do we do with the liberals who just want everything to return to normal? Mm-hmm. You know, their vision of normal where violence is like just out of their sight, you know? And I'm like going off on a tangent, but what I find is interesting is like now, now that social, after the George Floyd rebellion, like social media algorithms, everything has changed. Like even Twitter has an algorithm now, you know, when I go on my Twitter, I don't see shit about any of the stuff happening in Minneapolis. I don't like, I might see a unicorn riot courtroom update, but I'm not seeing footage. I'm not. And I think it's intentional. And I think they're, you know, they're, they get real good at recuperating our rage into the system while at the same time losing all, using all these like low key counterinsurgency tactics. And so, you know, what I always say is just like, let the liberals or the DSA do their, like push for their reforms or whatever, like go for it. You know, but we're going to be in the streets. We're going to be creating those alternatives, you know, through networks of mutual aid, you know, anything that gets people to not call the police and all that stuff is like a lot harder and it's not as sexy. And um, in order to really make those things stick and work, they have to be happening outside of subcultures. They have to be part of people's lived experiences, the way the Black Panther Party was and it seems like a lot of people are doing that and inching towards that and that's what i'm mostly excited about i i really it's it's laughable to think that you know kamala the cop and you know shoot him in the hip joe biden are are gonna make any kind of meaningful they're just you know their their role is to manage 
manage austerity and manage the yeah. <laughs> chaos, you know, manage the empire, not to, because, you know, you take away the police and then, you know, then what's next? Mm-hmm. You know, the police is what holds the society together, capitalism, yeah, all of it. So they need the cops to keep the system going. So, so to think that the system is going to, you know, willingly give up its favorite, one of its favorite tools. It's yeah. It's yeah. a, yeah. I mean, you can't separate like the slimy self-interest of a politician. I mean, and it is in no way and can never be institutionally in their interest to get rid of that, which protects them and right. Protects their economic cronies. Right. Right. It just ain't happening. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is, too. I, sure. I totally agree with you that it is on us to create those alternatives. Right. And it's one thing to call for police abolition, right? Because, like you said, that does Im- imply in some way the abolition of the state. It's like, what's next? And obviously, that's what we're after. But to talk about a society post-America is, is probably even more scary to people. Right. And like I said, you have a show with that in the title, Institute for Post-American Studies. What does it mean to you to be post-American? Well, I don't like, I don't like think I'm post-American. You know, I, I feel like basically the soul cast had sort of turned into this podcast where, you know, I was essentially talking about collapse and building autonomy, you know, in like looking at, you know, from my perspective, there's like multiple ways of looking at it, right? Like America is a colonial construct the word America, this place is called Turtle Island. So, you know, first and foremost, like as a settler, I want to say that that project is doomed. Like, like this whole American project has been fucked, you know, from the start, obviously. And then, then we're living through like the ruins of capitalism. So from like a, you know, philosophical perspective, you know, in my opinion, like, we live in a failed state right now. Like, um, you know, in my opinion, the United States is like definitely on a decline and it remains to be seen if this is even going to be a country in the next 50 years, I would doubt it. You know, and third, it's like thinking about what that looks like. What does a post-American society look like? And so from my vantage point now in Maine, you know, I lived in Colorado, Arizona, California, Barcelona, lived in like lots of different places. And from my vantage point now, it's totally different to be in a place where like urban struggle is just not really happening. You know, like there was some looting in Portland during the George Floyd rebellions. And that was, you know, that's inspiring to hear because that's such a small town, small city, 100,000 people. But like thinking, like being out here, like on the periphery of like liberalism and rural life and just doing the thought experiment, like what would it look like if the state stopped existing, you know, and like we get to see it all the time. We got to see it during COVID. We get to see it every time there's a natural disaster. Every time the shit hits the fan, we're told the state and the police and they're all there to help us. But then when when shit's fucked up. No one's answering the phone. No one's around, you know, like living through this day, the earth stood still shit, you know, seeing what happened in Texas with the power, seeing what happened 
you know, obviously in Katrina, Sandy, I mean, and this shit's just going to keep happening. So whether like the pandemic has only exacerbated these things, the pandemic is going, is uh, not going away and the damage it's done with the awful response from the United States in the beginning of this thing has caused, I would think, irreparable damage to a lot of people. Yeah. So when I think about post American studies. It's basically like what I was already doing with my podcast. So it's essentially just a rebrand away from soul. This rapper, this white rapper, I'm still like a character in it, but I don't like, I feel like a lot of rappers have like these vanity side project podcasts. And that's not what my podcast was about. It wasn't just a means to promote myself. It was a way for me to like promote cool ideas through my outlets. And a lot of those ideas that like I'm inspired by are like, you know, kind of like Invisible Committee, Tacoon, and even like, you know, like the Inhabit global stuff is all like really interesting to me. And I think it's part of it is coming. And also knowing Scott, like Scott, Scott Crow really made me rethink, quote unquote, activism. You know, and I just remember like I would just constantly be burning the candle at both ends, like showing up to every demo, making every sign. Oh, my God, we got to like put together the solidarity event. We got to do this. We got to do that. And it would always feel like it would be the end of the world if we didn't like do a sit in against Suncor or like, you know, whatever we felt like we had to do to like hold our line of the struggle, you know. But that's just one part of it. And that's not the whole thing. In order for us to really have revolutionary lasting change, we must build our own institutions and we must build our own capacity to survive. And, you know, like the IWW would talk about building a new world in the shell of the old. While I think that's like a cool way of looking at it or interesting way, I'm really interested in the ideas or like the concept of destitution because it implies more than just building a new world in the shell of an old. It's actually, um, and I'm not saying that they're both very similar concepts, but I'm not, I'm not familiar with destitution, destitution, you know, to destitute something. If you like, uh, if you grow your own bananas, you're destituting dole. Mm. If you are providing public education, that's like, Allowing people to grapple with high theory, you're destituting the university. If you are organizing armed self-defense mutual aid, you're destituting the police. And so it's a concept that, you know, it is very like, it's a very anarchist idea, but it comes more from, from how I understand it. It's sort of like a middle ground between anti-state communists and anarchists and people who are interested in those ideas to think about like building power that is confrontational, that like, you know, builds our power. And it's very much like common ground sort of stuff, mutual aid. But thinking about building, building institutions as opposed to just, it's still a concept I'm like grappling with. Really, you know, and so that's like, you know, this is the shit I'm excited about. So that's kind of where I'm going with it. But to be honest, I I had high hopes for this year um, with the podcast, but just didn't. I ended up just getting lost in music. Sure. And so I just finished the new Soul and Pain one album, pretty much. And so that was kind of that's kind of where that shit went. But I, I feel like I needed a break 
from podcasting. I've kind of gotten tired of the sound of my voice. (laughs) I know the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Or, Or, you know, I'll be honest, not even tired of the sound of my voice, just tired of like my quarantined thoughts in the house, you know? Oh, God. Yeah. 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 I get it. I get it. Wow. That shit really rewired us, you know? Yeah, we can't stay that way. We we cannot stay that way. I refuse to stay that way. This is not how I want to live. Same. I hate it. Same. So it's possible to to imagine a post American future that is actually dystopian, right? And I think that that's actually one of the strengths of naming your podcast that the Institute for Post American Studies because it has like a there's like a almost like a darkness behind it, like post-American studies. It's like almost scary. But I love that in a way you're almost acknowledging that with the juxtaposition of the smooth jazz that you have in the intro. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Which I thought was badass. Was that an intentional thing to like make it mall music sounding? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm just an Art Bell. I grew up l- listening to Art Bell and shit. And so if you listen to the first Soulcast episodes, it had that kind of music too. And I just like, I wanted the post-American studies to feel more produced because like the soul cast is always like, throw on a beat, some random hip hop beat, talk shit for however long in the beginning. And then the end of, you know, so I just wanted it to like appear a little cleaner and more concise and like sure i mean part of like the scary thing is why i think it's like good to have these conversations it's like i want to talk to syrians or people in rojava like what what was it like you know how like, mm-hmm. and, and people from all over but also thinking about what those ideas here mean and a lot of and honestly for me it's like how much can i get away with you know, can I really like, I don't even have a bachelor's degree or, you know, or, or so, I'm not, you know, I don't have any college shit. And so it's like, I, it's like something I feel like, I guess, insecure about or something. And so I'm like, over, I'm like overcompensating, you know, by, by calling myself an institute, you know? Dude, that's hilarious. So I, I feel like I do that all the time, like interviewing all these people with like PhDs and shit. I'm like, look at me without a college degree, yet walking amongst scholars. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it's like a way to compensate. Now I feel you. I actually interviewed someone from Kurdistan. We, we did an event called Rojava Strong, did a little, like made a little mini documentary out of it and um, got into that with him a little bit, just like what it's like. Right. Right. And so it's like, I, you know, I like, we have like a little, we have, I have like some people were, you know, thinking about how, what do we do, you know? And like, there are people who want to look at like the cooperation Jackson model, like a wholly encompassing economic analysis of the region. And it's like, that sounds, you know, of course it's a Marxist proposing that I love him, but you know, but it's like, and it's like, cool, do it. Like, I'm curious, I'm curious what that would look like. You know, let's, let's talk about that. Like, you know, you can drive through Maine. You don't, you don't see fucking cops. I mean, there's barely any cops once you get out of the cities. And yeah, and I think it's just a matter of like showing people how little the state really does for them and how we don't need it. You know, and all the things that people say that we need the state for could totally be done, you know, without an economic incentive, you know? And what I was going to say is like, I feel like I couldn't really even like in, envision like an anarchist society until I read, and this sounds ridiculous, but like reading Ian Curtis's 
the Culture series. I don't know if you're familiar with this. The non-Servium crew will just be so stoked to hear you say that. I'm, I have not read it, though. Well, like, you know, there's like obviously problems with, with it, but it's one of the only books, science fiction books, that like dares to imagine technology, but also like no go- a stateless society that's like somewhat utopian. You know, and even if you took out the, you know, this element that they have in their world where like you can think of any item and an artificial intelligence robot will create it for you, you know, it'll go mine a meteorite, you know, get the minerals and shit like we can just do away with all that consumer bullshit. We don't need, we don't need any of that. So like, like just like fuck that whole aspect of it and just think about what it means to like what our daily life is like, like we don't, the government is not really a big part of our lives and yet we can't imagine our lives without it, you know? So, yeah. So in in a way it's just like, I guess it's like talking with comrades who are involved in media and also analyzing sort of like statistics and like the growth of my podcast and its reach and feeling like it's not really hitting where it was needing to hit, I felt like, okay, maybe if I can like refocus this a little bit, I'll be able to speak more directly because it's like, there's so many anarchist podcasts right now. And like, you know, publishers are now hip to the fact that like, oh shit, like all we have to do is send, send one of these nerds our book and they'll do a two hour promo for us, you know? (laughs) And that shit's awesome. And like, it's an honor, you know, but I feel like, as someone with like a short attention span or something or somebody who doesn't like repetition, I get like, I like to just constantly be doing new things. I've been doing the soul cast for seven years and, uh, you know, analyzing like the radical media ecosystems that I'm a part of. I feel, I felt like I needed to make a shift that's more intentional. That's like specifically walking in the direction of like America's over. Let's talk about it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. So just hearkening back to something you said, you said earlier, like people can organize without economic incentive. And I think that is true. Just so you know where we're coming from, you might have already noticed if you've like looked at our catalog, but we actually are a little more of like a mutualist orientation at Nonservium, sort of. So I think it's like um, possible and we don't have to go into that, right? But I think it's possible to use some of these things to your advantage without it being all encompassing domination wage system back to fucking capitalist hellhole and ecological disaster world such as cooperation jackson and shit but we don't even have to get into that (laughs) well i mean you know i mean currency is like in my permaculture class the guy who taught it adam brock he wrote this book called social permaculture and his his ideas about it were like He would talk about capital, all the different kinds of capital, social capital, time capital, like all these, all these sorts of things. And I would like bristle every time he would say the word capital and I'd be like, man, can't you just fucking get a different word, please? Like, like really, is this the word? Like, really? You know what I mean? Like, come on. And, uh, I, you know, I love that guy, huge inspiration, but come on. Um, but it's like out here, out here, you know, we have a little, there's like a group of anarchist farmers and COVID kind of fucked up a lot of the stuff that we were trying to do. But one of the things I'm like really excited to do just on a basic level is just like timeshares, you know, like, Hey, I'll come help you 
on Sunday afternoon, I'll come over to your house. Let's all work together, hang out, eat some food, work on your land, whatever you need help with. And then next week we'll come to my house and like building sort of infrastructure that allows us to expand our projects without like bringing money into it, you know? And if in your mutual, I don't really know anything about mutualism, but in, you know, this sort of market world, you know? Yeah. Go for it. I don't have it all figured out. Like, go for it. Sure, sure. Same, same. So like, that's exactly the reason why I sort of value money, not as like a fucking dollar bill, but as a communication technology that is used when things become more complex than just like swapping time between farmers. Right. right. But again, we don't have to go in, into that. For <laughs> I've got so many other interesting questions for you that I want. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't really have a hot take on that. I'm, you know, one thing I will say, you know, that something my friend Steve Polk said that really stuck with me is like, you know, he was like, you know, I'm an anarchist or, but maybe what, or he was like, maybe I'm not an anarchist or whatever, but he was saying like, you know, he promotes anarchist ideas, but like maybe the end result that, you know, comes through this huge, you know, consensus project of like collapse and struggle, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something by participating in struggle and participating in this stuff, you know, will shape what comes next. Mm. Yeah, totally, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to you got to have no matter what school you're from, you got to have that humility when we're moving forward because that's like a big part of it, right? Is we don't have all the fucking answers and we're trying to figure it out from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. So, for sure. So, I mean, so this all begs the question, how did you become involved in anarchism? Well, how I became involved was through Occupy. But I started calling myself an anarchist in 2001. I was like reading Karl Marx and, you know, Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, calling myself a communist. And then this artist I used to work with, Ravi Zupa, was like, you're not a fucking communist, dude. Like hanging out with you for two weeks, it's pretty obvious you're an anarchist. You need to read this Emma Goldman book. Anarchism has everything you like about communism, but way better. And so I like, you know, I went in and read it and I was like, fuck yes, I am an anarchist. And then, but it didn't really mean anything to me. It didn't like inform my life. I, I lived in Barcelona for a while. I traveled around the world. I visited all these squats around Europe and like just started meeting all these radicals and like seeing all these squats. And again, all these institutions all over, like, and it was like, why don't we have this shit in the States? You know, all we have are like these, like, you know, punk basement shows or house shows, which is like, you know, it's cool sometimes but whereas like a squat in switzerland is like you know a fucking old factory that workers in the 70s fought the cops to keep and and now the state pays all their utilities because they value them as a public service you know and that's like that's interesting to me but uh yeah and then when occupy popped off i just like went down there. I didn't really know any activists. I'd never organized before. And then I just started meeting all these anarchists and I saw Occupy as anarchism in practice. Like to me, it was an anarchist movement, definitely anarchist ideas. And yeah. And then I just started, you know, like I was like drawn and repulsed by the local anarchists. I felt like they were very much 
often right, you know, and like definitely like upfront taking the shit, throwing down. But then there was also like a contingent of, of really vocal anarchists who were just like, you know, always getting into screaming matches with liberals and, you know, like denouncing Occupy as a whole for like some stupid thing one person does. And like, it just struck me as really antisocial and not how you build power by bickering and being assholes, basically. And like, you know, again, like all these people went on to become my friends and, you know, I learned so much from them and count a lot of them as mentors and stuff. But I was always struck as someone identifying as an anarchist, engaging in Occupy, surrounded by anarchists that were engaged with Occupy. But then you had the anarchists that wanted nothing to do with the inner workings of Occupy. And so, yeah, that just like kind of helped. Like, I felt like, oh, I'm in the middle of these people. Like I can like, you know, because I'm a musician and I've toured and I know all these different kinds of people and I have like more empathy, you know, I don't think everybody has to like have like the, you don't show up to these things with like the perfect analysis. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say stupid shit. You're going to have reactionary ideas in like through struggle and education. That's how you learn. And sometimes you learn by being called out and denounced also. So it's like, I'm here for all of it, but I just felt like the kind of anarchist I wanted to be was the sort of anarchist that would try to be more patient with new people because I felt like, like that tendency to just, you know, critique, you know, cause it's like, nothing's going to ever be perfect. So. Right. So you got to meet people where they are. No, I, I hear you. It's like people show up, they don't show up without like any problematic shit. They show up coming from this world that is like drenched in reactionary culture so it's like of course that baggage is going to come along with it can we say that we are fully without it you know i mean so that patience with people is key i mean i I admire that for sure but also because anarchists were patient with me there you go you know what i mean like the people who were patient with me are the reason why my politics sharpened you know, for sure. That's I can say that about Scott Crow with me for sure too. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I would say that about I would say that about Scott Crow for myself. I would say that about like Frank Lopez, um, mm-hmm. and there's there's a bunch of other people, and like some of the anarchists I'm talking about, I, I consider mentors as well. I mean, and so it's just you know, yeah, because during Occupy, like I thought, like no, I'll I'll go meet with the chief of police. I'll tell him there's no fucking way we're fucking leaving the park, and in fact. <laughs> bring us a fucking porta potty and you know and like just thinking like we had all this power and like you know what i mean you know what i mean and then like you get in there and it's like they're not trying to hear shit they're just there so that they can take photos of themselves meeting with us you know make it seem like they are hearing our demands out before they fucking come in and you know beat and uh, arrest people so but, you know, you, I had to go through that to learn, like, no, 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 you really, really, you really, really, really can't negotiate with the state when it comes to this stuff. Right. Like the only way, you know, and that was like, in going back to what you were saying, what we were talking about earlier about abolition, no one was talking, like, abolition is on everyone's lips after the George Floyd rebellion. And it wasn't because people were meeting with the cops and doing peaceful protest. It's because tens of millions of people across the country rose up and engaged in 
militant struggle. And that's, that's what pushes the bar, you know? And I feel like crime think really does an excellent job just continually pointing that out. Yeah. No, no, yeah, I feel you. If shit pops off again, it's just going to be a matter of like handling these professional white liberals who try to like interpret police abolition as something that is not and defang it, you know, like to the point of it being meaningless and to the point of nothing happening. But, you know, whatever. We could bitch about that all day, too. So how do your politics relate to your musical endeavors? It's more like, how does my music relate to my politics at this point? Yeah, I'm just getting all French with it. Um, <laughs> I love that shit. It's like, take any phrase and turn it around and sound smart. <laughs> you know, I view our project as a kind of public enemy project, like the rap group public enemy. And we literally just see our music as, you know, obviously it's an artistic expression that we're excited about. and But... Um, I mean, that's all I'm interested in is talking about this stuff. I don't, I don't make love songs, you know. I'm going to resist the Pete Seeger urge to, like, sing about the flowers in my yard, you know. But, yeah, I mean, basically, I'm just trying to I feel like I'm, say, I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again, but just saying it differently and honing in on different things, you know. And it's like you listen to a lot of hip-hop. You know, and like I'll get like called out, like your shit's so political or whatever. It's like, why don't you do this? It's like, dude, how come it's okay for Kanye to just sing about breasts and Lamborghinis and pants all the time, but I I can't just sing about you know abolishing the police? Like, why not? You know, why not? What if what if every song I wanted to make was about wanting to abolish the police? Like, you know, who cares? But yeah, so and I guess the only other thing I would really say about that is it's part of why we make this a pop. We try to go with more pop beats. Mm-hmm. Like this project could really only happen with DJ Payne One. He is a, or the Soul and DJ Payne One stuff, I think is like my most intentional political music, you know? And it's like, because the music he makes is like, you know, he does shit for like, you know, you name it, Jeezy, 50 Cent, like whoever, you know, he's, he does beats for all those people, but he's also an old school soul fan. So he kind of knows like where the middle ground is between like what he wants to hear from me versus like what I want to make. And I feel like music that's more stripped down that's poppy that like allows for like lyrics to sing like the music i tend to make is like really dark and thick and distorted and so it doesn't always lend itself to being like good agitprop it's more like my self-produced stuff is more like poetry and avant-garde or experimental in my opinion whereas the stuff with pain one is like geared towards like you can play this on a riot line you can play capitalism is tearing us apart for your bernie sanders cousin and they might become fans and it might push them to the left and so i'm always trying to just think about like using my platform for that you know i'm very influenced by guy debord and the situationists and you know one of the things they always said was go beyond art and you know when i was just diving into that stuff i i I really took that on like i don't just want to rap about this stuff i want to engage i don't want to be a studio gangster i want to get out there but also even without getting out there you can go beyond art 
just by planting these little kernels in people's heads. And it's cool because I've been doing it for so fucking long at this point, like two decades full time. I can see the influence it's had on people. You know, I can like, you know, talk to people who have like traced this trajectory from like old school underground hip hop. That's like, semi-misogynistic to today where you know those same a lot of those same people are like you know either getting into permaculture or reading you know desert you know and so it's just always like fun for me or like the challenge is always just trying to think like how do i cross-pollinate these things you know i've done it by putting readers in pre-orders. Like when people order the album, they'll get a reader with all kinds of essays and pieces that illustrate the ideas on the records. But it's just because that's the stuff I'm interested in, you know? And so that's what I promote. And in the same breath, same way I do with food, I can't make like overarching claims about, you know, music and its revolutionary potential, but to say it doesn't play a huge role in struggle is is absurd. And, And Scott Crow was one of the first people to like call me out on this. He was like at a panel I did at like resistance ecology. And I was like saying like artists out there who, who aren't in the streets are fucking hypocrites. I don't want to hear your fucking protest song. If you're not out there participating, because that's what really matters. And like, I was just so high on my own shit at the time. And Scott Crow pulled me aside. He's like, man, that was bullshit. Like if you had asked every single person, what, brought them to anarchism, every single person there would raise their hand. Every single one of them would say music, whether it was public enemy or a punk band. And that really like was like, oh damn, he's right, you know? And that's why like some shit you don't you don't have to think too hard about it, you know? It's like it's there. And it also like, you know, again I'm like shouting out my podcast left and right, but I'm also like a big fan of Carla Bergman and Nick Montgomery's book joyful militancy. But I also just love the conversation it starts because it's like saying what no one really dared to say, but like, but becoming friends with her also, it's like, it's really, I just love to see anarchists who champion art and like really value it and say like, no, no, no. It's like, it's so important. It's so important, you know? But also because I was like the first anarchist rapper also one of the first, you know what I mean? Like, or one of the first, like people with a career, you know, that's what, or let's put it this way, someone with like a fair amount of visibility representing anarchist politics. And I think that that matters too, because, because it's like now, now there's lots of hip hop anarchists, you know, but I would, I would say like sub media played probably a greater role in that. You know, I wouldn't say that all these anarchist rappers now are anarchists because of me. In fact, I know they're not, but it's, it's just, uh, mm-hmm. You opened up space for it. You made it, you made it to where that was part of like a, a cultural thing to do. I mean, and like, you know, like you were saying earlier, you don't have to do everything. Like propaganda has a role in a greater struggle and a stigmergic struggle that doesn't have to be ordered from the top down. Right. We can all play a part in like moving towards a better world without having to do every single fucking thing. Right. So. Right. Because we can't do every fucking thing. And that was like, that's what I'm struggling with now. It's like between parenting and like farming and music and podcasts and like all this other shit. I'm just like, you know, like, yo, I need to slow the fuck down. 
For sure. And I definitely want to ask you about like parenting later too as a radical. Just real quick though, do you ever feel held back by being a political rapper? I have a feeling you can't imagine a a type of rap career without the radical politics. Yeah, I mean, I just have no interest in it. I just feel like that's the role of art. I mean, even when I wasn't an anarchist or I didn't know I was an anarchist, I um, all I ever rapped about was like the world. I was a social critic. You know, I just didn't have the sharpest analysis. I've been like wanting to make a song or I really wanted to make a song about my dog that died, Gandhi. And because he was like, you know, God, you know, how I don't know, like yeah. the animal, the, like the pet, you go from like age. I don't know. We got our dog when he was like 25, when we were 20, when I was like 25 or 26. And like, you know, just like there throughout the beginning of our marriage, all of our moves and like, you know. And then, I don't know, I was just really sad when he died. And I wanted to make a song. I'd like to make a song about, like, the love of an animal. You know, like, I cried more about that dog than, like, all the people I know who have died combined. You know, like, my father. You know what I mean? Like, it's crazy to think about. And it's like, God, that was my fucking homie, you know? And it's like, I want to make a song about that. Yeah. Um, But I also feel like it's, like, cheapening my relationship with him to like commodify it in that sense. Like, so, so in one sense, it's like, I want the world to know, like, it's, it's okay to like the love you feel for an animal is oftentimes realer than the love you feel for humans. And I feel like that's very radical, you know, to talk about that anyway, or even to, you know, I've often thought like, how would I make a love song for my wife? You know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know. I just like, I, I try and I'm just like, no, It just, when I see people do it, it just feels like fucking pandering. And it's like, I just refuse, I've always refused to pander. And you know, at at this point, it's like, that ship has sailed. I don't get to like, you know, put the genie back in the bottle and, you know, make what people might've wanted to make 15 years ago. You know what I mean? I've already alienated (laughs) all those people. I have a friend who's like, you know, like a really vulnerable poet kind of type, you know, who like can you know, like write a song about his father dying and, you know, be very earnest and like, you know, that's what is authentic for him. You know, for me, that's just not the creative space I come from. I come from when I sit down to write, I'm never in a good mood. I'm always agitated. My, so my music, my music is like way more agitated than me. It's like early morning coffee Usually I haven't smoked any weed, so I'm just like, and like, you know, and and, and like kind of lucid, you know, and like, that's just how I create, you know, when, if I'm like high, I can't write, you know, if I'm happy, I don't want to make music. I want to be outside or be doing something. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. So. No, I feel you like that's kind of the artist struggle, right? I mean, like we have a creative outlet through music, but often it's like these negative strong emotions such as anger, frustration, or sadness and depression that like produces right. some of the best content. Totally. You know, the only thing I would add to that is that I feel very, very supported by radical community, you know, radical media, radical organizers, activists, you know, like a lot of my support these days comes from people who weren't old school soul fans. They come from people who, you know, discover me through it's weird to think people discovered me through my podcast but people have started listening and so like although 
you know, maybe if I'd made a bunch of compromises, I could have more money or something, maybe. But obviously, like, you know, and honestly, you know, inhabiting a niche that's somewhat unique can be way more sustainable than just being a flash in the pan. So like in one sense, it's true. Yes. Maybe I'd get more pitchfork props or something if I watered it down for them, you know? And I don't think I, I don't know. It's a, you know, whatever, but I own a house, you know, I'm a rapper. I, I don't have a mortgage. I, I don't know. You know, I'm not like rich, but, you know, I'm, I'm comfortably poor and very pleased with where I'm at. And that's largely because of like, I'm supported by lots of radical music fans. And those people, people who are actually fucking interesting to me, that support means more to me than like a million trendy white boys jumping up and down, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So how has it been for you navigating a genre that is historically associated with black people and black culture? Challenging, educational. You know, when I first started, I was like, you know, this fucking 13 year old white kid, like winning all these rap battles and people fucking hated me for it. (laughs) And then when we started coming up like white journalists, ironically, of course, projected all this like academic race shit onto us that like didn't really it was more them projecting about their own like whiteness i don't know but yeah i mean it has its it's it's complicated right it's like uh, the anticon stuff was so to the left of what was considered orthodox hip-hop at the time that we just like spawned our own subculture and it was i mean i don't want to say it was like a really white thing but like we were a bunch of white rappers who found found each other online And that was at a time when there weren't a lot of white rappers in the late 90s or mid 90s. And so, you know, you had to be fucking good. You know, you couldn't have all this fucking entitlement. You'd have to, like, be humble. And it was a black art then. And, you know, I remember, like, going to, like, Project Bloat and South Central and, like, meeting my heroes. And, you know, I don't know, they were cool. It was But, you know, people were also suspicious of us. You know, we were fucking white boys who moved to the Bay, didn't have a lot of like local history. And so there's like so much shit. Like if I could go back in time and like talk to myself about like explain to the crew, you know, like, yo, guys, we need to develop a really strong analysis around white supremacy and privilege. Because like back then, I just thought like, I grew up poor, you know, my father was a fucking drug addict. I was abused. Like I couldn't afford college, you know? And so I just like, yeah, it took a long, it, it took me a while to really learn about like privilege and shit. Cause that wasn't the discourse in 1999, you know? And so all the rappers I grew up listening to were black artists, but yeah, I don't know. Hip hop is so big now and it's split up into so many, you know, sub genres. I feel like, One of the best things that I can do as a white artist in a black art form is like own being a white man, you know, or whatever, whatever that means and like attack whiteness and try to undermine white supremacy and like speaking to the people who listen to my music. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because yeah, I'm just in like an alternate universe. So you were saying earlier you know, how if you watered down your music, you could probably have more success 
in different ways, whatever that means. And it's a pretty uncontroversial thing to oppose intellectual property as an anarchist, right? So, I mean, I'm curious, how do you handle IP um, when it comes to your music and your media? I just don't think about it, to be honest. If someone wants to license something from me, if somebody wants to like use my music for something, if you are a, a radical and I agree with what you're doing, you know, use my music, run with it. It's fine. It's awesome. I never cared about people downloading my shit, you know, but like the theoretical stuff around like open source stuff, never, that's just like, was never, I don't know, never, I don't want to say interesting to me, but I just never thought very much about it, you know, like creative commons stuff. That's never anything I really got into with my stuff. I've given almost, you know, all of it away for free, but I, I mean, I feel like a lot of my stuff is probably labeled creative commons share alike, but again, it's not just, it's just not something I'm like super passionate about. So I don't like, you know, I don't like copyright my shit. I just had some fucking trademark dispute where some fucking piece of shit rapper called white noise. who's a fucking white rapper and he sucks. Me and my wife have a, like an ambient electronic band called white noise. And this fucker thought that like he was like next to blow up or something and started like issuing all these takedown notices. And I was like, kid, go fuck yourself. First of all, like your music sucks. Second of all, like this is just me and my wife's ambient music project. Like no one is going to get your wannabe juggalo shit confused <laughs> with what we're doing, you know? And then like, he just was like obsessed and like went out and like trademarked the name. And then like, got our records like pulled off Spotify and shit. And like, I was like, what do I do about this? Like, do I, you know, I could like contest it with the trademark thing. I could like, you know, da, 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 da. but at the end of the day, I was like, this is just some shit we did for fun. You know what I mean? Like didn't have time to fucking deal with it. So yeah, it's just like not something um, like trademarks, copyrights. I'm kind of just down for whatever, you know, like I've, I've met, I remember like I like touring when like CDs were still a thing. I'd like find bootlegs of my albums in like Serbia or Moscow. And, you know, I was like, how many of these did you sell, dude? He's like, <laughs> he's like hundreds. <laughs> I was like, can I have one? He's like, sure. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, can I have one of those Godspeed bootlegs? And, you know, <laughs> and I just thought it was awesome. Yeah. You know, like if it wasn't for things like Napster and file sharing, my music never would have taken off the way it did. And one thing I would say is, you know, when people ask to use my music, I ask them what it's for, you know, and then I make sure it's not some reactionary shit. So like if somebody used my music in a fucking fashy video or something, like the bum fights people used one of my songs and they had licensed it from a company with a different name. And so we didn't know that that's what it was for and started issuing all kinds of legal threats to them because I don't want my music to be a soundtrack for that kind of shit, you know? So, so I like to be, you know, I like to reserve the right to say no. And then also if I feel like somebody has like shitty politics and they're just kind of like, you know, opportunistically, you know, I don't know. I, I might also decline if I feel like it's harmful. So there's obviously a lot of challenges navigating the music world as an anarchist. What is it like navigating the family world as a radical? I mean, it's funny because like I never really been around kids kept the fuck away from anybody who had kids like just don't know shit about kids i'm learning it all you know 
by fire. But it's interesting, you know, because my wife doesn't identify as an anarchist, but she's really into experiential learning, art-based learning, early childhood psychology, and sort of usage of like non-coercive, non-reactionary parenting styles. And it's like crazy to me because I feel like I'm more, um, like I felt like I didn't have enough structure growing up or something. And I feel like I'm like a wild, feral animal now who just cannot interface with society at all. And so I'm re- <laughs> like, I don't want, like when I had kids, people were like, oh, anarchist babies. And I was like, yo, th- this ain't, this isn't a Christian household here. You know what I mean? Like we're not raising anarchists, we're raising human beings, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and so it's really cool to like, so it's like, I don't want to like expose them to so much radical shit at a really early age and turn them into fucking, you know, either like a cop or, um, (laughs) that's my fear, you know, or like they do some like macho bravado insurgent shit at age fucking 12 and then their life is over. You know what I mean? Like, so That's like my primary concern as a parent, like coming into this is like trying to hold that line by like keeping it radical, but trying to be smart about it and not and churn out human beings that can like interface with the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so like, it's pretty cool. I mean, the way we do it is like me and my wife both drop down to part time to have kids and raise them. So like, you know, I work in the mornings, she works in the afternoons. I watch the kids in the morning or in the afternoon. She watches the kids in the morning. And, and like, it was really important to me from like a, whatever smashing toxic masculinity, patriarchy perspective. Like my father was never around. Her father was never around. They are, you know, they weren't present. They were mainly just like these workhorses who, you know, worked all the time, provided money. And then, you know, and then like one day, you know, yeah, one day my dad is dead and it's like, well, that was your life. <laughs> mm. And so I wanted to be present and I wanted to have that relationship with my kids. And part of moving to do a land project and not live in the city is like, you know, I want them to grow up looking at birds and plants. Like, I mean, it's fucking crazy. I was walking around with my one and a half year old yesterday and she's still teething and she knows she can go into the pine barren part of our yard and pick wintergreen off the forest floor and chew on it and it will like soothe her gums. I didn't even show her that. Oh my God. She learned that from her brother. Oh my God. That's so cool. And yeah. And so it's like, you know, like my son, you know, he like, we can't grow sorrel in our yard because anytime it pops up, he just fucking devours it, you know? (laughs) And so it's like, it's like, yeah. So it's fun, you know, but it's also like we've sacrificed a lot to do it this way. And so when the pandemic hit, we sort of already had like a pandemic parenting model yeah. that worked. Yeah. Pays to grow your own vegetables in that kind of situation. Yeah, totally. I mean, unfortunately, I didn't grow a ton last year because it was unclear that we were even staying. My wife had accepted a job back in Colorado and was like, we got to get the fuck out of Maine. I just can't. I don't like it here. And I was like, no, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. and then COVID, And then COVID hit. And then all of a sudden, like, we just spent the whole year just doing fun outdoor family shit and just, you know, she just fell in love with it here. So it kind of, everything worked out, you know, but it's not, it's, it's been a fixing up a farmhouse is 
tough. This was a this house was fucked when we moved in. You are actually, I mean, I don't know. Do you call yourself a farmer? I mean, it sounds like you do a lot of work on the land out there. I'm not a farmer. I'm I'm a wannabe. <laughs> you know, we just we the land that we got is just so overgrown. It was like vacant for two years before we moved in. And it, it's most, it's more like a wildlife preserve than a, than farming land. And so turning the parts that are like overrun with invasives into like an area where I can grow things that I want is like, is an incredible amount of work because it's just, you know, between deer ticks and how fast things grow and how, but it's, it's awesome. It's like, that wasn't in any of my books, you know, how to plant into a forest. That was never heard of that. So it's fun to be doing that. Describe to the audience what your homestead looks like. What all do you have growing? And um, if you went to your backyard, what could you just pick from a tree or pick from the ground and eat? Well, we've only been here three years. So, but right now, if you were to come here to eat, like we have a greenhouse that's loaded up with kale and spinach. And, you know, like, again, like my kids when they're hungry it's like this isn't even shit that i do when my kids are hungry in the in the yard they just run in the greenhouse and just fucking devour kale you know (laughs) so i mean we have basically if you were to come here now you could eat our greenhouse is full of greens you could eat some cattails if you were really brave we have uh stinging nettle right now we have like weird plants popping up like perennial broccolis like um, a wild feral turnip that grows a broccoli head and it just keeps shooting out hundreds of these and so we have like waves of these really cool experimental perennial vegetables that are delicious and like in the spring though if you're a forager you could just eat anything you know from dandelions to daylily greens so the main goal of this project is to do orchard stuff so we have one aspect of our property like uh, maybe it's only an acre and a half that is like apple trees fruit trees we just planted a bunch of pawpaws and then we have like another area that's like a nut area where we've got like a row of hazelnuts and last year from seed i grew i don't know 50 hazelnuts and so i'm planting like rows of hazelnuts we have a couple rows of blueberries we have like a couple hundred blueberry plants in a nursery bed. And so I think the thing I'm mostly doing is nursery work. And that's like learning how to grow persimmon from seed or how to grow pawpaw or some of these like weirder things, just because that's what's interesting to me. Um, And like, you know, I eat a lot of kale. So we're always growing kale. You know, we got apple trees, cherry trees, cherry bushes, tons of different berries, strawberries, grapes. And then we have another part of our yard that's just all perennials. I mean, annuals. So it's just like one huge row of like, whatever, parsnips, carrots, another huge row of like mostly kale and collard and some spinach. And then another row of like weird perennials. Ground nuts are a local indigenous food source similar to a potato, but it's in the bean legume family. So it's like a protein starch kind of tastes like taro root grows all over the river behind my house. It's fucking, it's cool. I mean, it's just cool to learn the shit. Then we got a bunch of mushroom logs. So we have like shiitake mushrooms, lion's mane mushrooms, oyster mushrooms. And uh, that's something you can do in Maine. 
is you can grow mushrooms on logs and they don't dry out. And uh, yeah, and that's where it's at. It's still like a new project. We got peaches. I got a bunch of sea berries, which is like this, uh, the highest in vitamin C that you can grow at this latitude. I mean, I could just edible tune tree with edible leaves. Like there's so much shit growing here. That's awesome. So it's a new project, but you just so happen to have every single fucking vegetable on the planet growing back there. Sounds like. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, that's just, that's just because this year after the pandemic, I was just like, all right, if we're going to stay here, then I'm going to make up for last year. And that's kind of why I'm not podcasting or anything. I'm just like pent up from being fucking lonely and like being starved for human interaction because people just don't want to fucking come out and get it. But it's like, fuck that. And yeah. And you know, potatoes, but I'm probably going to do it. Like we have like a whole bunch of stuff we haven't planted. I have like, I don't even know, like 300 tomato seedlings in my greenhouse might do like a three sisters thing. Like where you have like beans, squash and corn growing all together. Um, I, I basically am just trying to learn a bunch of shit and develop the techniques to like grow these perennial crops because I, I'm like, oh, and chestnuts. I've got tons of chestnut trees that I've grown. And like, I don't even know what I'm doing with all this stuff. Some of it I'm keeping, <laughs> some of it I'm giving away. I'm mostly just like going through the process of learning how because I'm interested in doing like, I don't know, like designing public nut orchards and like, just learning this stuff, sharing how to do it. It's unclear, like, if we're going to, I don't know, what we're going to do, like, commercially with our farm. I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe we'll sell seedlings. Maybe we'll sell plants. I kind of want to open some kind of restaurant, but I know I just would fucking hate it. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's just like a, it's just a playground. You know, I'm 40-something years old, so, like, what else am I supposed to do? You know, I need a fucking, you know, that Lamborghini. (laughs) That's beautiful, man. You got a little Garden of Eden going on back there, sounds like. Garden of Eden? Eden. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, it sounds, it sounds way cooler. That's the name of your restaurant. It's a shit show. Oh my God. It's a shit show. It's a shit show. When you start a company, whether you're selling vegetables in bulk or your own business, it's got to be called Garden of Eden. With the A in parentheses. (laughs) Well, you know, it was funny you brought up mushrooms because I was actually going to ask you because in a podcast a few years ago, maybe three years ago, something like that, you relayed a story about DJ Payne 1 piquing your interest about mushroom foraging or something like that. The only thing I'll say about the mushroom stuff is I don't forage mushrooms. I'm I'm too chicken shit. It's easier. <laughs> it's much easier for me to like identify the wild plants that I know a lot about, like stinging nettle or ground nuts. I'm still freaked out by mushrooms. I always want an adult to supervise any wild mushroom. <laughs> Got it. Um, so towards the end of these interviews, I like to do a lightning round where I list a series of people or ideas or items and have my guests respond to each item in one minute or less. Are you down? Yep. All right. First on the list is Lil Nas X. Cool. Cool. I mean, wait, wait, am I supposed to, one word, or am I supposed to give a response? Like, what do you want from me? (laughs) One minute or less. So, like, the recent thing that happened with Lil Nas was the music video that pissed off all the Christians. Oh, yeah. I loved that. (laughs) I thought that was great. I think Lil Nas X is great. I mean, he's, he's just fucking, just rocking it. You know, he's pushing the boundaries. He's having fun. He doesn't give a fuck. And he's 
making it okay for for rappers to be gay. You know, it's fucking awesome. You know, and that cat, that old country road song's catchy. You know, he, Little Nas X is is fascinating to me. I I don't like the music, but I I support. Sure. All right. Second item is robot dogs. No, thank you. I I just saw the video from like some New York city. They've got robot dogs there. It never occurred to me that like the same military industrial complex that, you know, dumping fucking Humvees on local police stations. Oh, great. And now we're going to get your buggy fucked up robots. Like, gee, that's not going to, but so by the time we've abolished, you know, by the time we've disarmed the police, there will be killer robots carrying out the same white supremacist functions. They'll all be like the broken robots that have been donated by, you know, the military to local police forces because they, they've got better ones now. Oh my God. Okay. Self-sufficiency. I think it's important. I don't think it's the thing, like no one thing is going to be the thing that sets us apart, but just having the skills, like me personally, like just having the skills to be able to grow food and to know how will always come in handy. It's always a good idea to know how to be self-sufficient, to know how to bandage your wounds, to know how to fucking operate a chainsaw. There's so much shit that like I can't do because I just never put up shelves. You know what I mean? Like there's just so much shit that <laughs> we don't know. And we need to regain those skills if we want to get free. Mm-hmm. Next item is Rush Limbaugh. Glad he's dead. <laughs> One thing I will say is that this is why I'm so glad to be a part of the channel zero podcast network and to be part of like this anarchist ecosystem of podcasts because for years, if you wanted to listen to talk radio, it was all like as a touring artist before MP3s and shit, you put on the radio and it was always right wing radio. And that shit rotted the brains of an entire, entire generations. And I'm just glad that there's a, there's better responses to that than like the failed air America radio station that like tried to emulate right-wing talk radio, but make it leftist. The vectoral class. Rules everything around me. Yeah, the vectoral class. They are a class of people beyond infrastructure, you know? And it's, it's fascinating to me to think of, like, in so much of the thinking that, like, you know, we were talking earlier with destitution or IWW, build the new world in the shell of the old. It's fascinating to think that, like, this post-capitalist class, to use the Mackenzie Wark analysis, could be like that far step ahead of us that they're that like they already know. It's like, no, 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 the power isn't in, you know, owning the factory. It's like owning the app that allows you to access the factory. And um it's fucking middle folk. They're always there to fucking I remember when Spotify and streaming first came out, you know. Tom York was like, fuck no, my music will not go on that. This is how the music industry is like taking everything over through the back door. And, you know, that was like 10 years ago. He was totally right. But that was like a total vectoral move that fucking destroyed the music industry and made it damn near impossible to be an independent artist. So thanks. Fuck you, vectoral class. (laughs) God damn. Yeah. 
So I have a few listener questions, then we'll go to the actual outro and, and then finish things up, okay? Cool, cool. So what are some of your favorite artists that other anarchist music lovers should definitely be checking out right now? Well, I would say Sima Lee, S-I-M-A Lee, like Sima Lee. She's a awesome black and indigenous queer. She's just awesome shit in DC area, mutual aid, helps do this thing called the Maroon House. She has a podcast called the Maroon Cast. Really awesome musician. Uh, Lee Reed is another one. Lee Reed is from Hamilton, Ontario, and he just has this really unique style. He's a white dude, but fucking awesome. Really sharp politics. Again, an organizer. He does like tenant organizing and just out there. Another one is Erda, Erda NYC from New York, kind of like a emo ish sort of rapper. And just really cool, really like dreamy. And, and it sort of has like a Silver Mount Zion, at least to me, it's not at all like Silver Mount Zion. Just how Erda's songs are like, feel to me like meditations. And it's just cool. Erda's a great songwriter. Another one is Time. Time is one of my closest friends. He's from the Denver area, another anarchist rapper, another podcaster, journalist. He's like co-authored stuff with uh, Scott Crow, Noam Chomsky. So he's just a really great artist. He's developed a lot and just doing cool stuff. Uh, Mike Crenshaw, although he's not on the A-team, he gets a, might as well be, very old school anti-fascist organizer from Minneapolis, living in Portland, another awesome artist that people should check out. And then artists that may not be anarchists, but I think are really great are is Chesky, my homie Chesky, runs Fake Four Records. He's like a kind of folk punk hip hop dude, you know, went to prison for some drug shit and like just has like a really sharp, sharp politics and just fucking like the best live hip hop performance anyone has ever seen period uh, moody black homies from minneapolis the lead rapper is a trans woman and they actually just opened a fucking restaurant in minneapolis called the mood house so if you are in minneapolis definitely go to the mood house and get some fucking tacos and their music is very like people who are into death grips this shit came first it's like darker with more of like a godspeed kind of sound but, you know, again, they're radical. They're not like anarchists, but, you know, they're co-travelers. Those are the ones that come to mind. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone and, you know, but it's life, you know? Yeah. All right. So this is a question, a reoccurring question on this podcast. But how can I get a cappuccino in your imagined political utopia? Well, ironically, um, there's an indigenous form of caffeine called Yopon, which grows in Texas. I don't know if you've ever had it. Have you? I don't know. Okay. Well, you, you should know it. Um, but, <laughs> and uh, it's the only indigenous caffeine in North America. So there's two ways you can get a cappuccino in my post-American society. First way, the, sh- the gross way, is uh, you take Yopon leaves, mix them with roasted dandelion root, and you'll get a really bitter really just terrible tasting substitute for coffee. So there's, there's that. But then what folks pointed out to me was that before colonization or before, you know, the genocidal expansion of America or however you want 
think about it, the trade routes, coffee was, you know, already making its way around. And so we don't necessarily need capitalism to have coffee and shit with the way global warming's going. You know, maybe maybe there's a way to, for people to start growing coffee trees in protected environments where global warming is heading. You know what I mean? To like, right now people are out, out here are planting avocado in unheated greenhouses and growing things like persimmon and, you know, things that typically did well south. So who knows, maybe, maybe coffee production can move further. I know that there's like soil requirements and I think coffee takes like a hundred years, but again, all that takes is a little foresight. You know what I mean? Cause they're saying like coffee might actually vanish because the places that it's being produced in now, it won't be able to in the future. So that's more a question. I would say that's, it's like a mathematical question for like a global warming scientist, where and if, and how, and can we plant coffee plants in the United States? I just keep getting more and more interesting answers to this question. That was great. Thank you. My pleasure. Or, or, or the robots will just do it, you know? <laughs> Hopefully not those fucking robot dogs. No, though. we're not going to need, you know, we're not going to need coffee because we'll have like done away with our physical bodies and we'll just be fully online. <laughs> we'll be in the cloud. In like a robot dog cloud mind. Yeah, exactly. We'll be in the mind of a robot dog just chilling. <laughs> Whole new meaning to man's best friend. <laughs> All right, last listener question is, how effective is the revival of the back to the land movement in fighting capitalism? Does it hold promise? I think it holds promise, but like I said before, I don't think it's the thing. But I think if, you know, if we really are in this for the long haul, then we need to be able to provide our own alternatives. But, you know, you can't have just land projects and no struggle. You know, these land projects, they must be linked. You know what I mean? It's got to be, it can't just be like, oh, here's my hamlet over here. These things have to be like, I don't know, federated or there needs to be a way to distribute resources and knowledge and practices. But that said, as, as far as it being effective, I don't know how effective it is at fighting capitalism. It's just another tool we have in our belt and every, every dollar we're not giving to fucking whole foods is good, you know? And, you know, just like on like a practical level, like on a revolutionary, a revolution of everyday life, practical level, it's like, it's a question of how do you want to live? You know, when I was in Denver, I would be like gardening in the morning, you know, and then in the afternoon, I'd ride my bike downtown and I'd be like on the riot line. And it's just a joyful way to live your life is to have some kind of relationship with the material means of producing life itself, you know, whether that's chopping down a tree, like just the physical act of like loading firewood into a stove in the winter, knowing that like there's no other heat. And if you don't, if this fire doesn't get lit, like your kids are going to be really cold, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. If everybody did it, we could just shed the state. But not everyone can because not everyone has access to those things. And so it's also a question of like cities. Should cities still exist? I don't think so. All right. We're going to the actual end of our conversation now. Do you have any advice for other people who are interested in creating a free world? What are some other tactics other than back to the land stuff and actions that you think, what do you think is most immediately necessary? I mean, right now, what's most immediately necessary is to be out in the streets with all the stuff with the Chauvin trial and all the stuff in Minneapolis right now. 
we're looking at a powder keg scenario. And so, you know, this is when it's important for radicals to be out there and showing up, standing in solidarity, being out there. And yeah, and so that's what I would say. I would say that like, that's the immediate thing. And so, and then finding a way to turn, to turn those mobilizations into people getting organized and people staying active. And then it's just hard with COVID because everybody's fucking wearing masks and shit. You know, it's like hard to like meet people when everybody's fucking wearing masks. But yeah, and I feel like anything that can become a place of encounter and radicalization is a good thing. Whether it's a reading group, whether it's like concerts, whether it's like assemblies, you know, I see, I see value in assemblies, even though I like have my critique of democracy or whatever. All the like successful organizing I did in Denver was based around assemblies and getting people together and getting people from different groups together. Because the more people you get together, the more uh, brave everybody gets. And that's when shit can get interesting. But again, it's like what we've seen in the streets already surpasses a lot of like the organizing that we were doing. You know what I mean? We saw a hundred cop cars on fire. You know, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't have dreamed of that when I, when we were doing assemblies in Denver. And so I just think that's like, yeah, I think that's the important thing right now is just to, for people to get together and to connect again, I think is the most important thing. And, you know, one thing a comrade was saying that really like hit me and I don't really know what it even means, but talking about how like the right wing conspiracy machine and just like all the shit we've seen in our country being a result of like how, you know, leftist spaces are like so middle class and like removed from from like actual working class existence and how that played a role, like what, what was the role played in that with like all the people falling to COVID conspiracy. It's just interesting that like the country is just so balkanized right now. Like, I'm not saying like we need to invite our racist uncles to the meeting or anything, but sort of thinking about what do we fucking do about that? Basically, like, what do we fucking do about the fact that half of this people in the country have lost their fucking minds? What resources should folks check out if they're interested in learning more about some of the stuff we discussed today? Well, they should listen to my podcast. They should like go, obviously go buy all my albums and like, <laughs> they can check out Propaganda by the Seed if they're interested in like the plant nerd shit I was talking about. I would, of course, say check out It's Going Down. Check out Inhabit Global. I think Inhabit Global is sort of like has raised a banner for building autonomy and land projects and this sort of stuff I'm interested in doing. I feel like they are doing the most with that kind of stuff. And so people are interested in that stuff. I would point them to Inhabit Global. Obviously, crime think. I'm a fucking crime think anarchist. Other than that, what's your website? S O L E O N E dot O R G. Got it. And your Twitter handle, do you want to give a shout out to that? MC Soul. Is there anything I forgot to ask you about that you'd like to touch on before we end the interview? No, I feel like we've talked about everything. <laughs> I think we solved everything too. And we don't, there needs to be no other podcast episodes, yeah. anything after this. We're done. You, you know, you didn't, you didn't ask me how I felt about the um, declassification of all those UFO videos and shit from the Air Force. 
Well, fucking, what do you, how do you feel about that? I should have asked you. I know. <laughs> I think that's cool. I'm all for it. I want to know, you know? Hell yeah, me too. That's the big question. That's the big fucking question. Are we alone? <laughs> and and how come like how come Marxists have the alien Posadaist shit? Like, where are the anarcho Posadaists? You know? <laughs> People actually believe that shit. I actually don't want to be saved by aliens. So. I just learned about Posadism. It's awesome. That shit is I mean, wild. I, it's wild. It's wild. But that is so badass. We should start like an alien worshiping. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Soul. Tim, Holland, thank you so much for joining me. This has been really great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, hey, it's, you know, it's really fun. It's actually like just a really great time to talk because I'm just, I don't know, I'm in a weird place. So it's uh, it's always fun to, you know, rant when you're like confused. For sure, for sure. So thanks for having me on and, you know. Absolutely. Godspeed. You too, man. All right, so we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. See ya. Thank you. They can come holler at me If they got a problem, I'm paid with no college degree These motherfuckers while my people can finally see I'm out here doing whatever I want Let me know if there's problems with me That we all just wanna be free We just try not do our thing What's the problem with happiness now? Yeah, we're happiness now Guarantee I'll be seizing means of production But I'll be breathing Smelling the roses I fell in Not leaving Success is deceiving Don't follow leaders Every time I waited I starved Everyone I trusted Mostly got gone Dying in cars On the way to their bars Yeah, they got God I got bars Pray and get prayed on Claim what's yours And get sprayed on Bullshit we raised on Grinding my ego No time to slave on Lay down Get paved on 401ks Won't save them We cold Famous lukewarm Running your mouth From a day job It's cool yeah, they gone I know what I'm not What I don't need, I don't got All that hot ever won't heat up the spot If you won't beef, I got nothing to say But the reasons and I give a fuck about who's doing what Stay in my lane All of the roads are just falling apart Building a life and it's hard To not be a slave to a boss And be the man that my father was not Sorry to say All we got left is a seed in the earth And some books and a plot There is no room at the top I will be deep in my yard Only desire to sleep with the stars These days I work like a horse Watch me Escape from this farm before they put me in a box. They can come holler at me. If they got a problem, I'm paid with no college degree. These motherfuckers while my people can finally see. I'm out here doing whatever I want. Let me know if there's problems with me. That we all just wanna be free. We just try not do our thing. What's the problem with happiness now? Yeah, we're happiness now. Six month olds in my arms, failed state on my back, bullets in my eyes, a sick deep pain in my laugh. Less hours to navel gaze, who cares? I watched the plan turn to a young man, to a young anything it wants to be. In self defense, I'll kill and never kneel. Ain't nothing changed but my email address. I no longer rat, I no longer need your respect. I no longer have a rap scene, I belong to or represent. Sometimes you gotta stand alone, cuz these motherfuckers are weak. So many fakes, I hate to speak on it. Walk around and not get stuck in it. You deep in it, you thinking you 
killing it, but you're short leashing it. Put your hands up, that's where the ceiling is. Winter ain't coming, it's what the season is. But you pretend to do you will do me without the music in the street to feed me. But my wits and I got a lot. So it's a lot of work to not talk shit. Yellow toxic scares me to the core. With allies like this, who would need Cointel Pro? Folks on the left can't even handle our own. Stay keeps on laughing as fascism grows. World doesn't ruin, there's no way to go. Through it is all that we know. I'm done with the drama, so spare me your woes. They can come holler at me. Got a problem, I'm paid with no college degree These motherfuckers wildin', my people can finally see I'm out here doing whatever I want, let me know if there's problems with me That we all just wanna be free We just try not do our thing What's the problem with happiness now? Yeah, our happiness now simply by liking and sharing this episode. As usual, shout out to our existing patrons. Your support helps us reach a larger audience and helps keep this project going. Finally, be sure to keep an eye out for the next episode. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.